True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The young man gets into the back of the car without a care in the world. The family he's getting a lift with seems nice enough. A man, his partner and their small baby. Surely nothing can go wrong. The thought doesn't even cross his mind. Until, within minutes, he's facing the barrel of a gun and the cold metal against his cheek is the last thing he feels. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht and you're listening to Episode 65, The Serial Crimes of Charmaine Phillips and Peter Grundling. This episode is sponsored by Dialabed. I cannot tell you how many people have said that the podcast is like a sleep aid for them. Apparently it's not that I'm boring, but rather that I allegedly have a soothing voice. So if you're prone to listening to the podcast while you drift off into dreamland, you probably want to make sure that your bed is supporting a great night's sleep too. It's easy to forget about the little things that insulate us from all the craziness that goes on in the world. But there's a place that's your sanctuary, a place that makes you feel all safe and snuggled up, your bed. But it's not just a bed to you, is it? Beds aren't just a place we open our eyes every day. Beds are more than stitching and cushioning and coil springs. Beds are life and love. Dialabed understands the importance of comfort and makes every single bed with something special. Dialabed makes beds for rest and all the rest. Upgrade your bed today by visiting a Dialabed store or shopping online at dialabed.co.za. A huge thank you to Dialabed for supporting True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters. A huge thank you goes out to two Grant Wides, Susanna, Erin Slatterly, and Michelle for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. There are now additional ways that you can support the show, with two online businesses providing 10% discounts when you use the code TCSA10 at checkout. You can get your health and beauty needs at King Online, and you can get all your printing requirements designed, printed and delivered by PrintCrowd. You can also help to support me as an individual creator by checking out the companion podcasts I created with Showmax for the Devil's Dorp documentary or by purchasing the Krugersdorp Cult Killings audiobook on Audible, Google Play Books, or Apple Books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. 
You can also leave a review on the podcast app you use to listen. If your podcast platform does not have that option, a Google or Facebook review is equally helpful. The case I'm covering today takes us back a good couple of decades, but I think it's a story that is as relevant today as it was in the 1980s. It's a case that deals with many of the same themes we see coming up in cases today. Difficult childhoods, toxic relationships, the finality of the death sentence, and the seemingly inexplicable reasons for which some people kill. Killer couples are rare, even more rare than female killers, which, if you look at the statistics, are really not that rare at all. In researching today's case, I used the book Blood on Her Hands by Tanya Faber and the book Fatal Females by Mickey Pistorius. So let's get into episode 65, The Serial Crimes of Charmaine Phillips and Peter Grundling. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Charmaine Phillips was born into a family already in turmoil. Her mother was an alcoholic, and her father had been diagnosed with schizophrenia in his early 20s, but he was not taking his medication. Instead, he used Dacha on a daily basis, which only served to worsen his psychotic symptoms. Her parents already had three children by the time Charmaine was born, and by the time she had turned seven, her mother had fallen pregnant with twins. In a household already struggling to make ends meet, with significantly substance-dependent parents, this was like adding fuel to the fire. Soon after the birth of the twins, Charmaine and all her siblings were temporarily taken into the care of the state. Her records would show that the girl, who was wetting her bed, clearly due to the emotional turmoil that was her life, had been beaten by her foster parents every time she did. Charmaine and her siblings would eventually be returned to the custody of their parents, and the Phillips would add another child to their brood during this time. During that period, Charmaine's mother's alcoholism formed a vicious circle with depression and uncontrolled fury, and the girl often witnessed her mother's attempts at suicide. Her father, dealing with his own mental health and addiction issues, was unable to offer any counterpoints to this chaos and trauma. In fact, Charmaine's mother would eventually accuse him of having sexually abused some of the children and had him leave the home. These accusations have never been proven nor disproven for that matter, but the man was eventually committed to a psychiatric hospital where he would at the very least get the assistance he needed. The man would occasionally reappear in the children's lives and then disappear just as quickly. Before Charmaine turned 10, her mother moved the family to KwaZulu-Natal. Although they were receiving welfare benefits at the time, her mother began to work as a sex worker to make ends meet. She used the family home as her base of operations, and as a result, 
Charmaine and her siblings were aware and sometimes witnessed their mother's sexual transactions. Soon neighbours reported the conditions in the home to social workers and all of the children were permanently removed from the home and placed in a children's home in Durban. Charmaine would never see her mother again and she would later learn that she'd been beaten to death by a boyfriend during a domestic violence incident. For the next few years, Charmaine was passed around between foster homes and eventually at the age of 14, she decided she'd had enough. One day when her foster parents were out, she stole a wad of cash they kept in a bedside drawer, baked them a cake and left a note to say thank you for their kindness as well as to apologise for taking their money and hit the road. She would never be under the control of social services again. Well, not until a bit later in her life, but for an entirely different reason. Charmaine's life from that point was based on survival. The beautiful young girl soon realised that she could support herself through sex work, and she continued doing so for the next few years. Eventually, she formed a relationship with a much older Lebanese sailor and lived with him on a boat docked in Durban Harbour. When she fell pregnant, the sailor forced her to leave the boat, and she fled to a home for unwed mothers in Port Elizabeth, and gave birth to her first son, Ricky Lee, when she was 16. The authorities that ran the home convinced Charmaine to try going back to school, and Ricky Lee would be placed in foster care while the girl attempted to further her education and secure a future for her and her child. Almost understandably, after years of having lived on her own, Charmaine found it extremely difficult to shift back into schoolgirl mode, and her brand new school career lasted a grand total of three hours before she walked out. Somehow, Charmaine managed to convince social workers to return her infant son to her, and she soon found another sailor, this time a Greek man, to set up a home with. Charmaine would live with the man on his boat when he came into harbour, but when he left, she returned to sex work to survive. She would later tell a judge, quote, I discovered that selling my empty, heartless body was just as popular in Port Elizabeth as it was in Durban. End quote. Charmaine soon married her Greek boyfriend in what has been described as an impulsive act. She would later claim that the man had promised to take her back to Greece, along with Ricky Lee, to start a new life. Unfortunately for Charmaine, though, this never happened, and her new husband left on a sailing trip and, very simply, never returned. She was never able to officially divorce him, although the marriage would later be annulled due to abandonment. After this, Ricky Lee was permanently removed from Charmaine's care. The boy was adopted by an Irish couple, and Charmaine would never see her first child again. She reverted to sex work to survive. At the age of 17, Charmaine met up with an ex-boyfriend from Durban, and soon the pair were working together, committing petty thefts, to fund their ducker habit.
It was during one of their scouting trips for a suitable target that the young woman met Peter Grundling. At the time, the man was in his thirties, but something clicked between the two, and they were soon a couple. Peter Grundling's childhood was significantly different from Charmaine's. He'd grown up in a farming community in Ermelo. His family would claim that Peter was a wonderful young man, but their glowing descriptions, which would only seem to serve to cast blame on Charmaine in the end, failed to explain how Peter had in fact ended up in jail in his early twenties, because he had. So even if his childhood was as idyllic as his family claim, at some point he and Charmaine seemed to have headed on a pretty similar trajectory, albeit perhaps for different reasons. Peter's family would also claim that it was this time in jail that had made him violent. On the day he and Charmaine met, he'd just been released on bail for a weapons charge. Peter had been married before, and had a son from that relationship who lived in Ermelo. The pair became joined at the hip pretty quickly. Their common interests of drugs, alcohol, partying, and paying for those things with illegally gained money meant that they spent most of their time on the road together, briefly stopping to secure money through robbery and then moving on. Peter showed Charmaine that it wasn't necessary for her to sell sex for money. Instead, she could just hold a gun in her victim's face, and they would hand over everything they had. The number of robbery victims the pair had in these initial months is unknown, but all these initial victims walked away with their lives, albeit likely very traumatised. Peter took Charmaine to meet his mother in Ermelo. She also met his son and his ex-wife. She would later say that she'd seen he was quite aggressive with his ex-wife, but hadn't thought much of it at the time. Charmaine fell pregnant and gave birth to Peter's son in 1982. They named the boy Peterkey. The child would join them on the next leg of their journey together, which would become far more dangerous than the first. On the 15th of June, 1983, Charmaine, Peter and baby Pitaki were in the north coast town of Ndloti. The takings from their last robbery victim had run out, and they were looking for another target. The predominantly tourist town was quiet at that time of year, so pickings were slim. They'd slept on the beach in their car the previous night, and now both were itching to get their hands on some alcohol and drugs. They decided that a bar in Durban called Smugglers would be the best place to find a target. There, a menagerie of sailors, rich city kids, and sex workers all shared the bar and nightclub, and there would be victims aplenty if they played their cards right. 39-year-old Gerald Mayer had been surfing all day when he walked into Smugglers, ordered a beer, and sat at the bar to watch rugby on television. A few minutes after he'd settled in, Peter Grundling arrived at the bar, ordered drinks, and started chatting to Gerald. He then invited the man to join him and Charmaine at their table. A few hours in, 
Gerald, relaxed by a good few beers, thought nothing of Peter's invitation to join them on a drive and to smoke a joint or two. Gerald noticed that Peter seemed to be taking them to a pretty isolated place to smoke, and little Peter Key had woken up in the back seat next to him and started to cry. The child's mother sat in the front seat, rolling a joint. Gerald asked Peter why they were driving for so long, and why they didn't just stop and smoke. Peter said he wanted to find somewhere where they wouldn't be disturbed by police. He wasn't lying. After about 20 minutes of driving, Peter pulled into an isolated spot, surrounded by cane fields. He got out and invited Gerald to join him for a smoke. It's likely that the man had started to suspect that the couple were less than safe at this point, because he declined. Before he knew what was happening, Peter was dragging him out of the back seat of the car. Charmaine and Peter frisked him, taking his keys and money while pointing a gun in his face. Then, as Gerald put his hands up to shield his face, the trigger was pulled and he was shot point-blank in the head. He died almost instantly. The couple who'd spent the evening with their victim, chatting and laughing with him, left Gerald's body laying in the cane field and drove away. Little Peter Key screamed in the back seat, as though he had some idea of the horror that had just unfolded around him. The couple lay low for three days. Gerald was reported missing by his family, and his body was discovered, but no link was made back to the very normal-looking couple with their baby. On the fourth day after Gerald's murder, Charmaine and Peter decided that it was safe to emerge, and they left the small town behind and headed for Richard's Bay. When they arrived there, Peter reached out to a friend and arranged that they crash at his house for a few nights. Using the money stolen from Gerald, they stocked up on milk, nappies, alcohol and dacha. You know, the necessities. And arrived at the friend's home. A few nights after their arrival, Peter decided he wanted to go out to a local pub for a drink. He returned home in a relatively short order, but he wasn't alone. Vernon Swart was 28 years old and looking for a lift to Empangeni when he met Peter Grundling at a local bar. Peter had smiled, and like the predator he clearly was, invented a story on the spot about how he and his partner were also headed to Empangeni and he should drive with them. After some drinks and joints at their temporary home, the couple, their baby, and the unsuspecting Vernon Swart all packed into Peter's car and set out. An hour after they'd set off, Peter pulled off on the side of the road in the town of Melmoth. Before Vernon could ask a single question, he was dragged from the vehicle and, and tied to a nearby tree. Almost as soon as he was securely tied, a single shot rang out, hitting Vernon in the head and killing him instantly. The couple rifled through Vernon's pockets, taking his wallet, 270 rand, and some photographs. 
They then drove back to their friend's house where they spent the night before gathering up their belongings and heading back out on the road. Over the next few days, they moved from town to town, doing their best to maintain a low profile. Seemingly wanting to put as much distance as possible between them and the two dead bodies, within a week, Charmaine, Peter and Pitsuki were in Ermelo, Peter's hometown. There, Peter met 32-year-old Barent Cravenstein at a bar. Again, this man sought a lift, and the couple's destination magically lined up with his. Barent was heading out to Kenros, which was about an hour from Ermelo. When everyone piled into the car, Peter told Barent that they were going to be stopping off in Secunda first for a braai with friends. Barent was happy to accompany them. While at Peter's friend's house, the group of people sat watching rugby when Barrent joked that he would bet the 800 rand in his bank account on one of the teams winning. Upon hearing this, Peter jumped up and said it was time to go. With baby Pitsuki sleeping in his mother's arms, Peter steered the car to a nearby dam. Barrent was confused but had little time to think, before he found himself being dragged out the car and robbed of his bank card and pocket knife. At gunpoint, the couple forced him to give them his PIN number. The number was no sooner out of his mouth than he was shot in the head. His body was dumped near the dam. Just a kilometre down the road, the couple stopped again, this time outside a house. Peter had known the family from his time living in Ermelo and knocked at their door, despite the late hour, until the family's domestic worker opened. The woman told Peter that the family was away on holiday, but Peter managed to convince her, no doubt using Charmaine and their infant child as a ploy, that they needed a place to stay for the night, and he knew the family well enough that he knew they wouldn't mind. By sunup the next morning, Charmaine, Peter and Pitsuki were on their way to Bloemfontein. On arrival there, they withdrew all of the money from Barron's bank account. With each victim, the time that the couple had spent with each man before killing them had decreased, and when they saw 25-year-old Martin Morforsi walking on the side of the road, the pair had no intention of changing that pattern. They pulled over and offered Martin a lift, and the young man agreed. While driving, Peter asked Martin if he had any dacha for them to share, and when the young man said he did, Peter pulled over in a clearing. As was their standard MO by now, the minutes the car came to a stop, Martin was dragged from the vehicle, robbed of his money, and shot. A single bullet to the head, ending his young life immediately. Despite the four victims being spread across a relatively large geographic area, the common MO and witness sightings the police were starting to gather meant that by the time Charmaine and Peter drove away from Martin's body, the police were already on their trail. Their spree had lasted 16 days to that point, and just a few days after Martin's murder, 
The couple saw their own faces on the television show Police File. If we think that intensive media focus on murderers and little concern for the victims is a problem we only have in criminal cases today, then we would be entirely wrong. As soon as the press got wind of the killer couple, made up of a beautiful young girl and her much older lover, and then adding in the fact that they allegedly had a young child in tow, the newspaper headlines exploded, and information about the four victims occupied a tiny portion of the coverage. The Bonnie and Clyde-like story made national news for the three weeks that the manhunt was underway. The couple had managed to stay under the police's radar, despite the enormous public attention, and even made their way through a police blockade to a block of flats in Bramfontein. They weren't there to hide out, though. While Peter kept the car running downstairs, Charmaine dressed her six-month-old baby boy in a clean white baby grow and tied a blue bib around his neck. Then she wrapped him in a blanket and walked up the stairs to Peter's brother's flat. It was Peter's sister-in-law, Isabella, who opened the door, and without explanation, Charmaine shoved the baby into the woman's arms, turned on her heel, and ran. Isabella and her husband, Adam, would open the blanket a moment later and find a note tucked into his baby grow, written in Charmaine's shaky hand. It instructed them to go to Johannesburg Station, as they would find a suitcase of little Peter Key's clothes there. Charmaine and Peter dumped their car, which they knew police were looking for, and stole a red motorbike. Just hours after they delivered their son in Bramfontein, the couple were apprehended by police in Vereniging. With the couple in custody and charged with four murders and many counts of robbery, the next phase of media hysteria began around the case, when the couple's trial started in October 1983. The pair presented quite differently in court, with Peter having the support of his family, especially his 66-year-old mother, who attended every day of the trial and cried non-stop. Charmaine, on the other hand, had no one. Her mother was dead, and she had no idea if her father even knew she'd been arrested. The press focused squarely on the pretty young woman, and for her part, she didn't seem averse to the attention. She seemed to want to promote the idea that she was wild and uncontrollable, likely despite her attorney's advice to the contrary. Charmaine hissed, swore and spat in the faces of journalists. Her behaviour became so bizarre and out of control that three weeks after the trial had commenced, the judge ordered that she be sent for psychiatric observation. For three months, everyone wondered what the outcome of the assessment would be. Would psychiatrists find that the young girl had been so damaged by her upbringing that she had not understood the difference between right and wrong anymore. When the trial resumed in early 1984, no such analysis was forthcoming. Charmaine was found to have no significant mental health issues, and she was fit to stand trial. 
When Charmaine had entered her period of psychiatric observation, her attorney had given her 50 rand to buy food while she was there, as the meals available were famously poor. Instead of spending the money, though, Charmaine had kept it, and on her way to court on resumption of proceedings, she'd been allowed to purchase a teddy bear. Social workers brought Pitaki, then 18 months old, into the holding cell area before the trial began. Charmaine had dreamt of the moment she would give her little boy the gift and see his smiling face, but when she handed it to him through the bars of her cell, the little boy turned his head away, suddenly afraid of this woman who was all but a stranger to him. Most of the trial was spent trying to determine whether Charmaine was indeed a cold-blooded killer or a victim of her much older lover's influence. In a seemingly coordinated ploy, both Charmaine and Peter claimed to have pulled the trigger in all four murders. Of course, what this would do would raise doubt on the ultimate guilt of either party. It would also do something else, though and this is believed to be the real motive behind the claims. In 1983, the death sentence was still very much on the table, but it would only apply to one of the pair. Because Charmaine was under 21, and according to law, no one under the age of 21 could be sentenced to death. The judge believed that this was why Charmaine had tried to claim that she'd pulled the trigger, because then... Peter may not hang. When the judge handed down the sentences to the couple, though, he made it clear that to him it made no difference who'd pulled the trigger. They were equally responsible. He also made it clear that if Charmaine had been of age, he would have had no problem giving her the same sentence as the one he handed down to Peter. Peter Grundling was sentenced to death. Charmaine Phillips was given four life sentences. There had been another strange relationship that had formed around this case, and that was between Peter Grundling and the man who'd hunted him down. Detective Ivor Human had relentlessly worked to track and arrest Peter and Charmaine, but after the arrest, the two men had become good friends. So much so, that Human had invited Grundling to dinner at his house on the night before his sentencing. And so it was that on the day before Peter Grundling was due to hang, one of the three people he asked to see was Detective Ivor Human. Human arrived soon after hearing of the request and spent some time chatting with the condemned man. Grundling handed him a full confession letter detailing every event in the spree, and in it he took full responsibility for the murders. Human believed that this was a last-ditch attempt on Grundling's part to somehow save Charmaine. In July 1985, Peter Grundling climbed the 52 stairs to the gallows, where seven nooses hung waiting only for the condemned they would put to death. Peter stood over a trapdoor as a hood was placed over his head, followed by a noose. Within minutes, the trapdoor opened and Peter's life was ended. He was buried in an unmarked grave in Zanfontein Cemetery 
in an area reserved for condemned prisoners, unidentified deceased people, and those whose families had no means to bury them privately. Charmaine's street smarts and her tenacious nature meant that she quickly worked her way up the ranks of the prison gangs and became feared and respected. In her first six years behind bars, she spent a significant amount of time in solitary confinement. In her seventh year in prison, a slow change seemed to overtake the young woman. She started to learn hairdressing skills and found she was very talented at the trade. She earned a small amount of money by tending to warders' hair and used her skills to trade as currency with other prisoners. She also took up art and started sculpting. News of Charmaine's skills with the paintbrush reached the ears of Arno van der Valt, who was a rather well-off man running a framing business. He would become Charmaine's mentor and agent, selling her art outside prison walls. For Charmaine, though, thoughts of the son she'd left with Peter's brother and sister-in-law haunted her every waking moment, and she regularly spoke of how she longed to be reunited with the boy. Her last image of him was his tearful face turning away from the teddy bear she offered, and she wondered how his life had turned out. Sadly, life for Pitaki had not been much better than those first six violent months he'd spent with his parents as the unwitting passenger on a murder spree. Pitaki had been taken by social services after his parents' arrest, and he lived a nomadic life similar to his mother's early years, moving between foster homes. No single foster home found it possible to keep the boy for very long because of the deep anger that seemed to fill the child. He seemed angry with the entire world, for reasons perhaps not even he could put his finger on. By the age of twelve, Pitaki was already committing crimes. By the age of eighteen, he was imprisoned in an adult prison for the first time on charges of housebreaking, theft, possession of drugs, and stolen goods. He was released, but at twenty-one, he was back in jail for being in possession of stolen goods. In Pitaki's early years, he'd had no contact with Charmaine, but when he was in prison for an 18-month stretch, he'd requested that he be transferred to Kronstadt so that he could be closer to his mother. This request was granted, and due to his young age, he was put into a medium-security young offenders unit near the women's prison. Mother and son would see each other every second Wednesday during supervised visits. Charmaine saved up all the money she made from hairdressing and gave it to her son on these visits. Pitaki served nine months of his sentence before being released. Shortly afterwards, the news hits that Charmaine herself may be given early parole. A few years before, a documentary had been made about Charmaine and Peter's crimes, in which it was revealed that the letter Peter Grundling had written declaring his guilt in the crimes on the day of his execution had allegedly been suppressed, and neither Charmaine 
nor any of her legal counsel had been made aware of its existence. In a news article published around the time of this documentary's release, it's claimed that legal counsel for Charmaine had immediately started proceedings to claim clemency for the woman based on the content of Peter's letter. It was never publicly confirmed whether this request had any bearing on Charmaine's early release, but on the 19th of August 2004, 41-year-old Charmaine left Kronstadt Prison in the middle of the night to dodge the press that would be bearing down on the prison the next day. A salon in Kronstadt had seen her talent for hairdressing and offered her a job. The owner called her one of the most talented hairdressers he had ever seen. On the outside, Charmaine wrote letters to the families of her victims, offering her apologies for her role in the murders of their loved ones and the pain the events had caused them. The brother of Barend Cravenstein told a journalist that all he saw was Charmaine once again all over the pages of newspapers and magazines, and not a single word about his brother, who actually lost his life. For 18 months after her release, Charmaine and Pitaki were slowly able to start building a bond, but the young man's brief and dark past would not leave him alone. In much the same way that his mother's seemed to follow her everywhere she went. In March 2006, Pitaki died in his sleep at the age of 23. There are conflicting reports about what ultimately led to Pitaki's death. He was known to have been living with HIV, but some reports claim he had cancer. Either way, the tragedy of this young man's life and death cannot be denied. The year after Pitaki's death... Charmaine married a resident of Kronstadt. When I've occasionally discussed this story on my Facebook group, a few people have said they've come to know Charmaine in the years after her release and describe her as a kind and caring woman. Now, there are two narratives around this case, and I've purposely left the second narrative for last. We've heard the story up until this point, from the perspective of Charmaine having been a willing participant in these murders. Heck, she even confessed to pulling the trigger at one point, whether that was true or not. In Mickey Pistorius's book, Fatal Females, a different narrative is presented, and that is one of a woman living in fear. I cannot say for sure where the narrative presented in Pistorius's book comes from, it might well be from the documentary made in 2004, but essentially, Charmaine claims that she was the victim of an abusive relationship. Pistorius details various incidents of coercive control and physical beatings, which Charmaine says she endured. She is alleged to have run away from Peter at one point, but he'd found her and brought her back to Durban. Perhaps most importantly, during the crimes in this narrative, she is painted as an unwilling participant. In fact, Pistorius says that Charmaine remained in the vehicle at the scene of each murder, and at one even begged Peter not to kill the victim. It's claimed that she was threatened with her own life and the life of her child 
if she ever said anything about the murders. In addition to this, Charmaine says that her confession had been part of a pact with Peter. They'd agreed, as the judge had suspected, that she would claim to have pulled the trigger to try and avoid Peter's execution. If the plan failed, Charmaine said, Peter had promised to write a letter setting the record straight before he died. He'd done this, but because the letter had not been handed over to anyone, Charmaine says she'd believed Peter had gone back on his word. When the documentary revealed that the letter had indeed been written, she decided to tell her full story. Despite including the story in her book, Pistorius doesn't give much insight into what she thinks may have been the true narrative behind the crime. I'm certainly not going to deny the possibility that Charmaine Phillips may have been the victim of domestic abuse. I'm also not going to ask, if she was, why she didn't do X, Y or Z. Because, far too often, we ask why victims of domestic abuse don't leave or say anything, and that's not the question we should be asking. We should be asking why they are being abused in the first place. I'm pretty hesitant to accept that Charmaine was a completely unwilling participant in these crimes, though, for two reasons. Firstly, because in almost every case of a female-male killing partnership, we see the instant narrative emerging that the female participant must have somehow been coerced, and while that may sometimes be the case to an extent, I don't think it's fair to assume that it's always the case. The second reason that I'm unwilling to automatically accept this narrative is because Peter Grundling had not killed before he met Charmaine Phillips, so why did he start killing when he met her? This is something we see in almost every murderous partnership. We saw it in cases like Fred and Rose West in the UK, and even to a larger extent in the Krugersdorp murders. When two or more people with existing pathologies come together in this way, or rather, in a sense, seek each other out, the perfect storm occurs. Each member of the partnership fulfills something within the other that empowers their pathologies and helps them to take that step over the line. There's a lovely little romantic meme that goes around on social media regularly that I think describes this perfectly. Quote, And then my soul saw you, and it kind of went, Oh, there you are. I've been looking for you. End quote. Now those words are supposed to describe a perfectly healthy pairing of two people meeting, and recognizing in one another what they've been searching for. But I think it works for couples like Charmaine Phillips and Peter Grundling too. Yes, Charmaine had a horrific upbringing. She had a terrible start in life, and for that I have complete empathy. And she may well have continued that cycle of abuse with Peter Grundling, and maybe she didn't necessarily want anyone to die. But I do believe that when she met him, something that was already inside her said, Oh, there you are. I've been looking for you. 
and something in Peter Grundling, said it back. When Peter was hung by the neck until he died, that something died with him. And perhaps Charmaine has never, and will never again, find someone that wakes up that part of her. Or maybe it's gone too, and it died with Peter. As has seemingly always been the case with this story, I've spent a lot of time talking about the two perpetrators. So in closing, let's talk about the victims. Gerald Mayer was 39 years old. He loved surfing. And I can actually picture him being in the water as long as he could get his board out there. But he didn't get that chance. Instead, he trusted what seemed like a young family and lost his life in return. Vernon Swart was just 28 years old, a young man right at the start of his life, just trying to get to another town. Baron Cravenstein was in his early 30s, and his brother says he still remembers the pain of hearing about his brother's death to this day. He too was just trying to get to the next town over, and made the mistake of trusting the wrong people. Martin Morfosi, the youngest of the victims, was just 25. He'd finished work and was just heading home. He thought himself lucky as the nice man and woman pulled over with their baby to offer him a lift. I don't know if these men had children, if they were married, what they liked to do or what their jobs were. I don't know this because no one thought to ask and no one seemed to think it was very important. But it was, and it is. Regardless of this, we do know that these men lived. They loved, and they were loved. And maybe that's all that matters. Because no matter how terrible anyone's childhood was, or how toxic the pairing of a couple may have been, no one had the right to take their lives for any reason. And after all these years, I think it's only fair that we say their names and recognize the deep loss that their murders represented. Gerald Mayer, Vernon Swart, Barent Cravenstein, and Martin Mafosi. Rest in peace. Thank you for listening to episode 65, The Serial Crimes of Charmaine Phillips and Peter Grundling. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. <laughs>